The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections in November. Make sure to text the word VOTER to 26797 right now to check your registration and to receive your polling location and reminders for all local, state, and federal elections in the future. Thank you. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress, social justice advocate, and humanitarian. I am Mandana Dayani, an entrepreneur, attorney, and most recently the co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am a Voter. So Mandana and I are best friends, and we're constantly sending each other stories of people who blow our minds. And then one day we realized something. Most of them had no intention of becoming heroes. They just knew they had to do something and did it. So we decided to do what we do best, completely geek out on endless hours of research. And we cannot wait to present you the 20 accidental activists who blew us away. Based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan, these are the dissenters, the people who just made a decision one day to challenge the status quo. In this episode, we speak with Congressman Adam Schiff. No, like seriously, we speak to Congressman Adam Schiff. Like we can't even believe it ourselves. <laughs> in addition to being valedictorian, most likely to succeed a graduate from Harvard and Stanford, an attorney and the senior congressman from California serving his 10th term. He's also the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and served as the lead impeachment officer of the impeachment of President Donald Trump. He's even a triathlete. Oh, it's so crazy. And yet what has always been even more inspiring to us than all of that is the congressman's incredible love of country, of our nation's values, and the Constitution. As we thought about what it means to be a dissenter, the image of Congressman Schiff standing up at the podium every day during the impeachment trial, knowing he would be met with endless antagonism to stand up for our nation, that was the ultimate embodiment of dissent. And just some backstory, we heard from some mutual friends that Congressman Schiff really, really really loves the Big Lebowski. (laughs) So naturally, we thought it would be super awesome to surprise him on our Zoom call with Deborah and I both having the dude (laughs) as our virtual backgrounds when he jumped on. Yep. And then he had one too. (laughs) No way. (laughs) This makes me so happy. That's it. Congressman Schiff, we are giddy. We're totally Uh, giddy. Well, I'm I'm a fan of yours, Deborah, and I'm a fan of your activism and all the voting work that you're doing, Madonna. So it's great to be with both of you. Thank you so much. We are going to try to keep this cool and pretend like this is totally normal for us. Totally normal. <laughs> so with this podcast, we really want to learn how you became the hero you are. So let's start with your childhood. I had no idea that you grew up in a bipartisan family. Your father was a Democrat and your mother was a Republican. I can't even imagine what those dinner conversations were like. Well, I just uh, grew up, I think, with the feeling that neither party had a a monopoly on good judgment all the time. But I do remember years later when I was first running for the state Senate, meeting with a Glendale City Councilwoman who was an arch conservative. And I had uh, it, it was election day. I had voted early in the day and I ran into someone who told me at the polling place that she had voted for Franklin Roosevelt and she had voted for me in the same lifetime. And I thought that was a really 
kind of neat, if very remote tangential connection with Franklin Roosevelt. And I told this conservative city council member this story, and she looked at me and she said, Adam, I would not tell people in Glendale that story. <laughs> and I said, why not? And she said, there are still people here who are pissed at the Roosevelts. And this was when I knew that my upbringing in that bipartisan household, nonpartisan household, was misleading. They all agreed on Franklin Roosevelt. Isn't that so crazy? I always think about how much my understanding of our political parties has changed throughout my own lifetime. It's so beautiful that you were able to live in a home and learn firsthand the humanity in both perspectives. What did you think you wanted to do when you grew up? You know, I think that I was very undecided about uh, what I was going to do really until quite late uh, in life in that I think uh, I I remember writing to my grandfather as a kid when he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said that I wanted to be a policeman, a fireman, a doctor, or a lawyer. And I still remember he wrote back to me. I must have been nine or 10 years old. He wrote back to me, you know, policeman, fireman, doctor, lawyer, why not Indian chief? (laughs) And I thought, okay, I, I had never considered that actually as a potential career. But I think you know, when I was in college, I was pre-med and a political science major, and I still hadn't figured it out at that point. But it took me quite a while to decide this is what I want to pursue. Oh, my God. And then you were deciding <laughs> whether or not to go to med school or Harvard Law School. You must have been every Jewish mother's dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this love of screenwriting we read about. So was that in the mix, too? No, the screenwriting came much later. I moved to Los Angeles uh, after law school to clerk for a judge. And of course, every lawyer in Los Angeles is also a screenwriter. So it was only then that I I started dabbling in writing. And I remember going to the Academy Library where they have all these screenplays and sitting down and reading screenplays. Uh, I'll tell you an anecdote that you'll both appreciate from when I was in state legislature and I'd written my first screenplay and I'd sent it around and Got an agent at William Morris, and uh, was the, oh my the God. response I was getting from the studios was really positive. And I was talking to this colleague of mine um, named Steve Peace, uh, fellow state senator. Now, Steve is a filmmaker. He was also in the state legislature. You would know his greatest work or best known work was Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. And, but, but in any event, I was telling him about all these great reactions I was getting from the studios. And he looks at me and he says, Adam. There are two kinds of responses in Hollywood. There's yes, and there's here's the check. You're getting a lot of yes, and you're not getting much here's the check. (laughs) And uh, of course, he was absolutely right. Welcome to Hollywood. (laughs) I just have to say it's unbelievable that your first outing, you got an agent at William Morris. I have so many friends who are writers who have been trying to get representation and they still can't. So anyway, so I'm a major movie buff. And if you're going to declare your love of film, I need to know, what are your top five movies? Oh, well, you know, I guess my number one will be, will sound a bit trite, but it's To Kill a Mockingbird. And probably the nicest compliment I ever got was getting an email uh, a couple of years ago from Anthony Peck, one of Gregory's sons, um, completely out of the blue, saying that his father would be proud of me and what I was doing. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, Atticus, Atticus Finch was why I, I went to law school and why I ultimately chose that career, just the inspiration of that character. 
So I have to put that as number one. The, the, my other others on the list are quite eccentric. I, I like Unforgiven a great deal because it's so unpredictable. Of course, The Big Lebowski is uh, definitely on my list. That's my son's um, favorite movie of all time. <laughs> Is that right? Yes. Well, I've been been often asked, you know, what's the line from the Big Lebowski that is most often applicable in politics? And I have to say, no, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. Although more often these days, I would probably have to say you are wrong and you're an asshole. <laughs> um, but yes! uh, those yes. are some of my favorites. It's really hard for me to pick Blade Runner, very different genres, also one of my favorites. Uh, any movie that Deborah is in automatically makes my top list. Oh, you really are a politician. <laughs> <laughs> I realized when I was doing research for this interview. I mean, research is a huge understatement. She's literally written a dissertation, but okay, Deborah, play cool. <laughs> I am. I'm come, okay. Be casual. Thank you so much. Anyway, I didn't know about your time as assistant U.S. attorney when you prosecuted the case against Richard Miller, a former FBI agent who was then convicted of spying for the Soviet Union. I imagine that must have been such a formative experience for you. And then to see it come full circle again so much later in your life. Even though Miller was an FBI agent and he was the first FBI agent ever to be indicted for espionage. The case was investigated by the FBI, by fellow agents. Wow. And I ended up having uh, enormous respect uh, for the men and women of the FBI, their uh, professionalism, their, the, just the quality of their detective work. And, and so that has stayed with me for decades now. But that case did teach me something about Russian tradecraft, who they look to target and how they look to manipulate people. Miller was someone struggling financially, someone who was a serial adulterer. And so a kind of a honey trap was a perfect setup for him mm. uh, to offer sex and money to this agent who was uh, uh, really kind of on the outs uh, of the FBI, was, you know, a good prospect for the Russians. And it turned out to be a very successful recruitment. Wow, that's insane. Well, you know, one of the things I couldn't get over in your biography, what, you know, despite all of your success as valedictorian and most likely to succeed Harvard, Stanford, was that you actually lost your first two campaigns for the California legislator. You're just someone I would imagine, you know, has never failed at anything because, well, you're you. And so, I mean, I feel like my fear of failure has held me back so much in my life. Like, so many things I would have probably pursued I didn't because I wasn't sure that I would excel or started doing and didn't think I was good at it and stop. And I don't know, sometimes it's just so hard to get back up. How did that experience shape you? Did you ever consider giving up? That's a great question. And, you know, it, it, you can look in hindsight about the things you learn by losing and it, it tends to have a, a Rossi glean to it uh, because you've overcome those losses. At the time, though, it's quite uh, a, a punch in the gut. And I remember, you know, literally feeling like I'd been punched in the gut and had the air knocked out of me. When I first ran, I was aware of how little I knew. Uh, I'd never really worked on a campaign. And here I was running my own campaign, totally on a shoestring. And it was a special election. There were, I think, about 14 candidates uh, running for this 
vacant assembly seat. It was a sprint because the incumbent had retired and the governor announced a special election just weeks later. So how do you get known in a matter of weeks? Well, I decided I was going to get known by outworking everyone, knocking on more doors than anyone. That's amazing. I mean, that's exactly how I was raised. My father always taught me to outwork everyone, like first one in, last one to leave, you know, you just never stop. And and I don't know, maybe that's the immigrants in us. Me too. I just, it wasn't an option in my house. We had to work as hard as we possibly could. We had to strive for the best grades, for the best schools. And I, I think that taught me a lot about ambition and work ethic, but I definitely had a profound fear of failure. I can't believe you just kept going. And I'm confident I did knock on more doors than anyone but I learned a very painful lesson that first campaign when all 14 of us essentially finished in the order of our fundraising, which, you know, on the one hand was, was kind of a, a bitter lesson to learn. I tried to obviously learn that lesson and be more successful in fundraising the next time I ran. When I did run again, it, it was a Republican-leaning district. 1994 was a very, as it turned out, Republican year. And I was running against uh, a Republican incumbent that year. I remember uh, Prop 187 was on the ballot. It was a a very tough anti-illegal immigration initiative, very draconian. And I opposed it. And it was uh, like I was standing on a train track. And I looked down and I saw my feet were tied to the track and I could see that train coming. uh, And it just ran me over. I mean, that's insane that you could just keep going. And And it is really just such an incredibly valuable lesson to everyone of just keep going, just keep going. So many points in my life when I was just so tortured by failure or, you know, how people were going to respond to something, it was always just friends or other people checking in on me and saying, like, just keep going. And that really stood, like, stuck with me. That's going to be my next tattoo. You even have one tattoo? I have one. Oh yeah, I got it. What I'm like, what are you th- what are you thinking? You were there. Like, literally holding your hand. <laughs> anyway. You know, you you lose once and you run again and people say, Okay, you know, he lost the first time. You lose twice and you think I'm running again, and people are like, Okay, he's really lost his mind. And so I was close I was close to saying, Okay, I tried that, it didn't work out. But I was encouraged uh, when a sentence seemed cake came open by the Senate president to run. He had been impressed with how I'd run my campaigns. Uh, I had done better than many of the Democratic incumbents uh, in 1994, that very Republican year. And so I decided, okay, I will give it one more try. Well, we're certainly glad you did. You are known for being staid and composed and unflappable, which I think comforted all of us who were watching you during the whole impeachment we definitely do not want to relitigate the impeachment hearings, but we wanted to discuss one of the moments that just so profoundly impacted us, your Right Matters speech. I mean, that speech will go down in history as one of the great orations. And Mandana and I just watched it over and over. And what was so clear and so palpable was your incredible love of country and your love for our values and traditions and to see you get emotional when I know you normally aren't, when talking about defending our democracy and protecting our constitution, it was, it was extraordinary and so beautiful. 
when Mandana and I talked about the concept of this podcast, the visual of you standing there at that podium every day, declaring your love for our country, fighting for our collective good, knowing how hard the battle ahead was, that was the exact definition of a dissenter. Can you please tell us about that moment and the inspiration behind it? I, I was very mindful, and, I, and my fellow managers were very much of the same thinking, that we were really trying the case to two groups of people. We were trying it to the senators, and we were trying the case for the American people. And we knew what the result was going to be with respect to one of those juries. Uh, we knew that uh, there was little chance of conviction in the Senate. But we wanted to be able to make the case to the American people. And it's one of the reasons why the themes that uh, I emphasized in that, that closing statement that you're talking about went well beyond the narrow question of, did the president try to extort Ukraine uh, to help him cheat in the next election? The fact that the president, he can't tell right from wrong, that he lies constantly, that the truth doesn't matter at all to him, these things really aren't necessary to proving that he withheld military aid from an ally at war to get help in his reelection. But they are really important, I think, to remind the country about that, you know, we need to be about more than just winning, as you say, uh, that the blind uh, cult around this president is dangerous for the country. It's causing the country to lose its way, to not know right from wrong, to not be able to distinguish the truth. And there's nothing more corrosive to a democracy than the idea that there's no truth. And so I think the reason why that statement resonated with people is that so many millions of Americans during the last three and a half years have been sitting in their living rooms watching this drama play out in Washington. Um, watching this this terribly unethical president and wondering, am I crazy to think that this is just not how it should be? Am I the last person who still thinks that this is just plain wrong? And people, I think, needed and wanted to be reminded that, no, you know, this country stands for something. There is there is an idea to to America that goes beyond just being a nation in terms of what it stands for. And so... I think that's a case that continues to need to be made. We need to remind ourselves that we're better than what we see from this presidency, that this is not, when I said to the senators, he is not who you are. He's also not who we are in this country. He's not who the American people are. He doesn't represent American values. Mm. I think the theme that came out of that was principles versus winning, principles versus power. And we saw you made a direct appeal to your Republican colleagues to say, please put your personal ambitions aside. Essentially saying, please choose country over party. And aside from Mitt Romney, a true hero for standing up for what was clearly right, it went down on party lines. I have to think that seeing the courage that Mitt Romney demonstrated, the courage that Joe Manchin and Doug Jones demonstrated, there are a number of Republican senators who are. Um, jealous of the courage Mitt Romney showed and wished that they had the stuff that he does. And they may not have known that about themselves. But why do you think they were so afraid? Like, why was this so different than Watergate and the Clinton impeachment? I'm firmly of the view that the difference between Watergate and now, the difference between the Republicans who forced Nixon out and the Republicans who would do anything to cover for Donald Trump now has a lot to do with the presence of Fox. And I think if, if 
Richard, if Richard Nixon had Fox News, he, in my view, would probably never have been forced out of office. And I don't know what you do about that in a country that venerates the First Amendment, what you do about a news organization that has become essentially in its prime time hours, if not more, uh, a prime time a megaphone for all the falsehoods uh, and dishonesty that come out of the president. One thing Deborah and I were so curious about was just how you physically handled the toll of the impeachment, because mm-hmm. we do have mutual friends. And they told us that you're a vegan. And apparently that was really put to the test during the impeachment trial. How did you eat? I mean, Madonna and I really are big fans of food. So (laughs) (laughs) the idea that you are a vegan and, you know, you probably had 15 minutes to eat. How did you how did you handle that? Well, I I did have one breakdown in my veganism during the trial when we would, you know, have lunch brought into us and whatnot. And there wasn't much that I could eat on this particular day. And they did bring in barbecue. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna make an exception. I, I do have a I have to confess as a vegan, a a set of very narrow exceptions uh, where I will allow myself to cheat. And I decided on the spur of the moment that I would create a new exception that I would allow myself to cheat during an impeachment trial of a president, but only <laughs> under those circumstances. That's how um, I am dur- about being kosher. It's like, well, only on vacation <laughs> and at weddings and blah, 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 blah. But <laughs> I think in, a, in the impeachment trial of a president, I think that's a, that's a fair exception. Fine. So I now have a rather long list of very narrow exceptions. But what I was really contending with during the trial wasn't uh, being vegan, uh, which I managed for the most part. But I made a terrible mistake a week before the trial. And I had a what I thought was a loose filling. And I thought, I'm going to get it taken care of now. So there's no chance it will bother me during the trial. And about a week before the trial, I had the cavity refilled. And that ended up causing intense tooth pain. And so I, I thought, okay, it's probably just sensitive from that, the cavity being refilled and it will go away. And it didn't. It got worse during the trial. And uh, I ended up getting a root canal during the trial. What? Yes. What? And I'll tell you, no, no. During ever the, the tri- trial? Yes. You had a root canal? <laughs> My God. Which is not optimal. Hey. But uh, no one ever, as I've told my fellow managers, because it was so painful for, for really two weeks, that no one ever looked forward to a root canal more than I did. But that did solve the problem. That's insane. You know, you're Job. I told her last night, he's Job. <laughs> I mean, what is it What is it that drives you every day? We talk a lot about adversity and how sometimes it's just so hard to keep going. I mean, on a very small level, I mean, the trolls that come at me every single day relentlessly and, you know, ultimately Trump coming after me. There have definitely been moments where it has sort of made me feel rocked a little bit and vulnerable and and questioning, you know, is this worth it? Should I keep being as outspoken as I am? And, you know, up until this point, I've decided, yes, I'm going to keep going. You know, I, I feel a real sense of mission about what I'm doing. I really, I've been in public office now for over 20 years, uh, almost 20 years in the Congress, and I've never seen Uh, a more grave threat to democracy, and not just our own, but all around the world, you see a rise of autocrats in Turkey and Egypt and the Philippines and Brazil. Of course, Putin exporting his 
malevolent uh, form of government, but also China exporting its own digital totalitarianism. And I never imagined, though, that, that in such circumstances, we would see the greatest danger to our own democracy come from within. But it does. And that was another realization for me over the last few years, that the greatest danger to our democracy doesn't come from Russia. Uh, it doesn't come from outside. It comes from within right now. And so as long as that's the case, and I'm in a position, position to do something about it, I'm going to do everything I can. And, and the way I've found sometimes when days are difficult, more difficult than others, is uh, I get up in the morning and I say to myself, I'm just going to get through the day. And at the end of the day, I say to myself, I'm still standing. And I'm going to continue doing everything I can. I remember reading about your reluctance at the beginning of the impeachment process. You were so aware of the consequences it had on the country, its citizens, our our partisan divide. There was so much talk that the impeachment could help reelect Trump, that Democrats would lose anyway, that even you could lose your own seat. So I guess now looking back, since you've had some time to reflect, do you think it was worth it? I do, and really more than ever, think it was necessary uh, and important that we impeach the president and the House even knowing what the result was likely going to be in the Senate. Uh, I had resisted impeachment during the course of the Russian investigation because I wanted to find the answers, let Mueller conduct his work, and then when the investigation was concluded, determine what the right remedy should be. Well, the day after Bob Mueller testified, Donald Trump was back on the phone, this time trying to get foreign help from another nation, Ukraine, by withholding military aid. And what that said to me was that Donald Trump, on the day after he felt that he had finally escaped accountability for inviting foreign interference in his first election, was back at it feeling now even more immune from any responsibility, beyond any accountability. The Congress hadn't impeached him, wasn't going to impeach him. He could do whatever he wanted. And to me, that said that he has learned exactly the wrong lesson from the, the investigation and the fact that he had not been impeached over the Russia uh, misconduct. And to me, that made him very dangerous. So what are the consequences of this? Realistically speaking, this lack of accountability is definitely going to have a huge effect on all of us. So I, I shudder to think of what more he would feel empowered to do if there were no form of accountability. And even though he would be acquitted in the Senate, impeachment in the House is the strongest form of censure that the House has at its disposal. He is now one of only three presidents in history who have been impeached in the House. And so it, I think, has deterrent value, and not just to this president, but to future presidents. And so, uh, yes, I am very proud of the case that we brought. I think it was very necessary that we do so. God, that is so reassuring and so powerful to hear. I know it must have been so hard at times. And I think we're just so grateful to you all for really believing in what is right and doing what seemed impossible in order to protect our future. I feel like we wanted to just like jump through the TV screen and and be there with you and and stand with you through all of that. And we're just, thank you. Because every day it seems like more and more elected officials are losing sight of the big picture. That they are just a small part of our big and beautiful history. And we need to protect our trust in these institutions. You know, I, I have to think that 
when I went into the courtroom in Los Angeles in that Miller spy case, and the jury looked at me and they looked at these uh, FBI agents I was calling as witnesses on the stand, they had a certain trust and belief and faith in the integrity of the Justice Department. But it breaks my heart and to see what's happening to my old department. You know, when you mentioned earlier, my getting emotional during some of those uh, statements during the trial, I've you know, struggled to describe how I feel about all this, except that it, you know, the predominant feeling is less anger and more just utter heartbreak at seeing how he is tearing apart this country, uh, growing the divisions in this country, causing people around the world and leaders around the world to suddenly think that America is not what they thought it was, that what they admired about the country no longer uh, is true. I mean, it just breaks my heart. So at this point, how do we turn back? How do we rebuild trust and unite our country again? I think everyone is just exhausted and wants this partisanship to end, but we don't even know how that's possible. Well, I think the good news in this, and I know we're all struggling these days to find any good news, uh, is that we can rebuild and we can rebuild better, both from this pandemic, but also from this presidency. And I, and I think two things are going to be really key to how quickly we can do that, how effectively we can do it. The first is the size of the repudiation. All around the world, and I think indeed even here at home here in America, people right now are wondering, what does this country stand for anymore with this kind of a president? And around the world, they're wondering, okay, was this about a temporary insanity on the part of the American people? Or is there some, this now some strain of the American character that we did not see that will recur in the future? And the size with which we repudiate this president in November uh, will either send great confidence or continued skepticism about the country. But do you think we can forget about what happened? Like, do countries forgive some of this behavior? I mean, we've abandoned our allies and, and like, we just start over as if nothing happened? Yes, that's what I think about all the time. Even if Trump is gone, how do we start over? I mean, how does that, how does that happen? If he is widely reputed, as I believe he will be in November, that will help a lot in assuring the rest of the world that we made a terrible decision, but that's not who we are. The other thing, though, is going to be good work sustained over time. And so we're going to have to demonstrate to ourselves and the rest of the world what we really are about and the values that we care about. And, and that will take time. No matter how big the repudiation, it will still take time to claw our way back from the hole that he's dug for us. Yeah. You know, and I think this is what the pandemic has revealed. Um, so much is just different than what we thought. I think in some ways our country is so much more united than we thought because we've seen so many people just show up and support each other and and help figure out how to save lives and buy groceries. But it also has really highlighted just how many people live in really horrible conditions and don't have access to healthcare and and just how many different systems and structures that we have not paid attention to that need to be rebuilt, how we treat our essential workers. I mean, what do you think this shared experience has illuminated? You know, with respect to the pandemic, I, I, I do think that this pandemic is revealing in such a graphic way, in such a deadly way, some of the 
terrible inequities in our society, uh, the disparities in our society, where, for example, African Americans are dying at so much higher rates than the rest of the population. And I really think that we need to, as we come back from this, as we rebuild from this, we have to think about rebuilding back better, uh, rebuilding a stronger country, a more just country, more equitable country, and use this trauma that we're going through, this cataclysm, to see these real vulnerabilities in our society, the, the growing, yawning gap between rich and poor, and how we need to build a better society going forward. So don't be dispirited. Uh, people can't decide that they're going to just check out I'm so glad you're doing this podcast, and I'm grateful for all of both of you for your activism. That's the answer. Disengaging, you know, is demoralizing. The, the best way to, to feel empowered of your own circumstances is by being involved, by being active, by being part of the solution. So let's, let's think about how we really rebuild back better from this catastrophe, both the pandemic catastrophe and the catastrophe that is Donald Trump. Watching what unfolded in the Wisconsin primaries was heartbreaking. Those images of people standing in line in the middle of this terrifying threat to exercise their constitutional right when they could have voted by mail, it just, it, it still haunts me. Nobody should have to choose between their health and their vote. Do you think that we'll be able to ensure fair and safe voting for every eligible voter in November? I do, and we're going to have to insist upon it. And I think that as we go forward with subsequent relief packages, packages designed to deal with the impacts of this pandemic, we have to insist on uh, ready access to vote by mail for every American. Uh, Los Angeles just decided in the wake of how poorly the primary elections went in LA, they're going to mail ballots to every voter. It's going to be a mail-in election. Provision needs to be made for that in every city in America because we don't know precisely what the circumstances are going to be like in the fall, except we do know the virus is going to be with us. And we can't have a situation where people are forced to choose their vote or their health. But many in the Republican Party would like nothing better. Uh, for years, their political business model, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, their whole business model is built on fewer Americans voting. They recognize, just as the president does when the president said the, the, the secret thing out loud, when he said, if people can vote by mail, if people can vote more easily, Republicans will never get elected. You know, that may be true, but that's a reason to change their platform, their destructive device of world platform. It's not a reason to disenfranchise people from their votes. But that's been their strategy, uh, predominantly aimed at communities of color by, you know, stringent voter ID laws, by closing down polling stations in urban areas, or now by the, by the gerrymandering, and now by the, the greatest potential disenfranchisement of ever. It is so incredible just listening to you speak. I didn't even realize how painful this experience of the pandemic has been and how badly we have just missed leadership. I feel like we've all just been waiting for a leader to show this level of compassion and vision and to say that we're going to get through this and we're going to be okay. And and just hearing you say it, I felt this tremendous sense of calm and hope that I, I really haven't felt for so long. Thank you. I, you know, it, it, it so always astounded me during this presidency how little the president understands 
about what the job of the presidency should be about. It should be about making us a more perfect union. Instead, this president gets up every morning determined to find new and uh, inventive ways to divide us. And, you know, I think all of us long to once again have a president who understands that the job is about more than them. You know, it's about, about the country and what it stands for. It's about making consistent efforts to, to bring us together, to uh, inspire uh, us to our, our higher ideals, our better angels. And you don't realize just how much you treasure that, how important it is, uh, until you don't have it anymore. But we will have that again. We will have that again. And we, we can do something about this. Uh, you know, the, the ultimate uh, reason for encouragement is the people who feel the way Donald Trump does are a minority of Americans, a small minority of Americans. And the American people turn out, they will turn out these people that are tearing at the fabric of our society. They are a, a small minority of our country. And so we, we have the power to do something about our circumstances. We're not powerless. And see, that's exactly the point that we've been making. They are a very small minority. And I do believe that so much of it, to your point earlier, is that, that people are misinformed. They don't even know the truth. They're being lied to all day by our president, by the news networks, <sighs> which they're supposed to trust. And by the memes in this, like, weird curated world that they've created for themselves on Facebook. You know, I do believe in Americans. I believe in their love of country. But how do we get them access to the truth so they can make more informed decisions? I mean, they turn on the TV and they're told to drink bleach. It's like, how do you, how do you even fight that? Well, I, I think really this is the most difficult and cross-cutting problem of all. And that is how we get our information. There, there really been two revolutions going on at the same time. One in the economy with globalization, which I think is just as disruptive as the industrial revolution, and the other, the revolution in information, where uh, most Americans now get their information through social media, and that's a, a venue in which fear and lies uh, travel much faster than truths. And, and then you have the whole Fox effect that we talked about earlier. I'm acutely aware of, of just how we live in different inf informational worlds, and I don't know how we break down those silos. Um, you know, there is a strong profit motive for Fox to do what Fox does. When Donald Trump was elected, Fox had a choice, a business decision to make. And the business decision was, are they going to be the conservative station, the conservative network, or are they going to be the Trumpist network? Because they couldn't be both. And they decided the money was with being a Trumpist network, and that's what they've been. And so that was a pretty easy business decision, but it was a tragic decision for the country. And I, I really don't know what we do about that. It's so devastating. But isn't their job to just, like, tell the news? Like, I don't even understand. It's like, what, what happened to the day where you could just get fact-based information? And I don't understand how it's legal how it's legal for a station purporting to be a news channel being able to regularly disseminate disinformation, like flat out lies. And it's not just, you know, one every few days. It's like hour after hour after hour. I don't understand how that is not regulated. It's so dangerous. Like even at home, it's like you can tell who in my family watches what news channel. And it's like, it's, just crazy how much 
people can be, their own values and their own opinions start becoming informed by these people who are not journalists and they're not reporting fact-based news. They're literally spreading whatever opinions they have, whatever memes they read or whatever they were told to say. There should be like a disclaimer. And it's so crazy how much this comes up because we always say how critical it is for people to have access to information because the more informed they are, the more empowered and engaged they are. And ultimately, the more they vote. But It just doesn't make sense that these news organizations can create confusion and chaos and health risks because they want to turn a profit and and that they aren't even held accountable for it, as Deborah said. I mean, people can take medications and lose their lives because someone told them to. And then the news organization that told them to do that just keeps doing that over and over with nothing to stop them. I don't I don't understand. Do you think that regulation is the path to writing this ship? I mean, is there anything that can happen at the congressional level? Uh, well, the, the social media companies, I think, are in a different situation because they enjoy a congressionally provided for immunity from liability, which if they don't uh, behave responsibly, they shouldn't have immunity more than any other industry which doesn't have immunity. But in terms of, of you know cable stations like Fox, I really don't know what you do about it, except we have to find a way to do better civics education of our, our people, teach people how to find trusted sources of information, and, and do a better job competing uh, in that marketplace, because Fox really has a stranglehold on uh, the GOP. The GOP members of Congress are afraid to cross Fox. They're terrified of being criticized by Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson. and and I, I think this is just creating a debilitating division in the country. And we, ha- we have to figure out a way to overcome it. And it's probably going to require all of us rather than a, a government-imposed solution of some kind. Congressman Schiff, based on everything you know, everything you've worked on, and taking into account everything that is at stake, are you confident in our ability to get past this terrifying chapter in our history? You know, I do want to you know, underscore, because we're obviously going through a great trial of a sort as a nation, both with the pandemic and with its presidency. We are going to get through this. We are going to get through this. And I think whenever you go through a national trauma, there's a tendency to wonder, is this ever going to come to an end? Are things ever going to go back to normal? It's hard to see when you're in the midst of it. But this too shall pass. We're a better country than what this president represents. We will have good leadership again. We will be proud of what our president is doing again when we have a different president who is guided by ethics and morality, who tells the truth, who appeals to Americans on the basis of their their better instincts, not their deepest fears and darkest suspicions. So this too shall pass. We will get through this. <sighs> and the more we do now, uh, the quicker we'll get through it and be able to look back on this as a terrible gauntlet we had to run, but we ran it and it's over. Oh, from your mouth. <laughs> okay. So for those of us who are a little bit emotional <laughs> and- That's a nice Yeah, one. yeah. And trying to figure out how to manage all of this. We've been- cooking and exercising or not. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I've been singing and taking ukulele lessons. Who takes what? ukulele lessons? I, you know, I just thought it was cute. I don't know. <laughs> what, what have you been doing to stay calm? Well, what do I do to stay calm? 
you know, it's hard these days because I, I like to go to the gym, which I can't do, but I go for hikes. Uh, I go for runs. I uh, work out to the degree I can work out at home. I find exercise is a great outlet. And of course, and I want to thank you for this, I watch a lot of movies. I'm deeply grateful for all, all of you in the entertainment industry. Okay, but more importantly, do you watch The Housewives? And do you have a favorite housewife? <laughs> Why am I asking you this question? It's so embarrassing. You know, I have to admit, I do not watch reality TV. I get enough of that during the day. Fair enough. Okay, and I think we saw your daughter give you a haircut on Instagram. What was that like? <laughs> yes, I, I got a haircut from my daughter while she was drinking Moscow Mules. Very, I don't, uh, it turned out, I thought, okay, but very risky proposition. Well, you know, she's got a second career there if she wants it, because you look very, <laughs> you know, very DC worthy with that haircut. Oh, oh, that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, thank you so much. Seriously, seriously, thank you. We are so, so, so grateful to you for everything you do and for everything you stand for and for being one of our great dissenters. It has meant so much to us to introduce our listeners to people who have been brave when it wasn't convenient or easy. And you are the pinnacle of that for us. Well, thank you so much. I Really, it's a treat to be with you. And I'm grateful for all of your activism and sharing your talent with the American people. So thank you so much for having me on. I don't want it to end. I know. <laughs> Don't get off. No, we're friends now. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to tell people that. If you do, I will. Okay, deal. <laughs> we're so sad. We have to let you go, but hopefully we can share a glass of wine in person at some point after all of this trauma has lifted. Absolutely. I look forward to seeing you on the other side of the curve. Okay. Okay, take care. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Deborah Messing. Oh my God. That just actually happened. He's unbelievable. <laughs> what do we do now? I don't know. I can't just like go back to my life. <laughs> I need my ukulele. Thank you so much for tuning in and please join us next week as we speak to our dear friend, the brilliant Sophia Bush, the equality warrior. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell. <laughs>